Thank you, Chelsea. That's, uh, that's a taste of what you can experience if you take part in these D groups. It's not going to be easy. It's not super hard either. It's, it's a commitment, you know, like a commitment to Christ. It's a commitment. It's something that you want to do and, and live out, and I, I, I believe that you will be incredibly blessed by being a part of it, uh, just like Chelsea shared with us uh, that she has been blessed. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 19. We are back in Acts, and if I were continuing my uh, ACDC illustrations, I would have gotten up here and sung something like, Back in Acts! But I won't. Thank you, Chelsea. I won't do that, because that'd be, well, nobody else would get it except Chelsea. So, Acts chapter 19, we're looking at verses 23 through, 20, uh, through 41, as you turn there, let me briefly-ish tell you about where your staff was uh, Thursday through Saturday. We went to Dallas uh, to the, actually it was Grapevine, but who cares about the particulars like that, uh, to the Caring Well Conference put on by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was all about primarily abuse of all sorts, no, generally about abuse of all sorts, primarily about sexual abuse. Um, there was, I know I've shared with you these statistics before, uh, but in the general population, one in three women and one in five men have been sexually abused or assaulted. Uh, so if we look around here in our congregation, it really means about one in four people here this morning, statistically, have experienced that. Uh, the, the convention, the conference, was certainly about protection and prevention. Uh, we learned a lot in, in those areas. Uh, there are areas as a church that we are doing well. There are areas that we as a church need to shore up some things. We need to improve some things, and your staff will be working on that uh, through the coming weeks. But it was also about care. Uh, for every... Uh, message, speech about how to do things well, uh, there was a survivor story. Uh, I don't think it was quite one-to-one, -one, but it seemed close. Uh, we heard from numerous people who have been abused by uh, uh, their parents, loved ones, family members, friends, pastors, youth ministers. Uh, one story that really stuck out to me was, uh, I, I had heard this before because I've been keeping up with it, uh, a lady who, when she was, I believe, about 15, was abused for a number of months by her youth minister all around the church. And when she finally got the courage to go and tell the pastor, uh, he began to abuse her too. And it went on for six months. do this the whole conference. I don't know what that's about. Um, do what? Oh, tissue. <laughs> Good, got them handy. Um, so it, 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 there was a lot of that, and, and it was uh, incredibly emotional. Um, and it was then primarily about how we as churches, we as believers, care for those who have been abused. 
So uh, it was, I had a few people, well, well was it good? <laughs> that's not the word to use. <laughs> that's not the way we would describe it. It was informative, it was eye-opening, it was hard, it was needed. Uh, there were a couple of speakers that pretty much took us to the woodshed uh, as churches, as a convention, uh, as leaders, and, and, and didn't agree with everything they said. Uh, would, with some of the things they would say, I'd say that was not true. But honestly, that was not the point. Uh, their perspective of it, while it might not be truth, and I hate the phrase, it was their truth or something like that, so I'm not going to use it. It was how they see it. And we need to hear that. We need to hear how other people see the things we do, particularly as it pertains to this, this issue and how we handle it or have handled it in the church. So we have a lot to process. Uh, Tom, Amy, uh, Etta, and Carrie, and Carrie and I uh, went. Uh, so we covered as much as we could every ministry area of the church. Uh, and we will begin to, we will still process this and, and work through the, some of the ideas that they gave us and those sorts of things. But I, I say all that to come to this point. Um, if you have been abused, and if it happened five days ago or 50 years ago, let us help you. I know that based on what I've heard, that that amount of trust is, is huge uh, it, it, nearly impossible, I think, to come by and understand it. And, and No, I don't. I can only understand what I've been told. I know it's hard to come forward with that sort of thing. I know it's hard to trust people with that information. I uh, certainly now am understanding that it's even harder to trust a church when it may have been the church that had some role in your abuse. I do understand that as much as I can on this side of it but let us help you let us get you the healing the the justice the uh, opportunities to begin to let God work on that that are available to you um, if it happened in the church in this church or another church or outside the church let us help you, no matter who did it, no matter how you think, well, that person won't be, uh, they won't believe me. They, they won't believe that that person did it. Let us help you. As a church, it's not our job to, to declare guilt or innocence. It's our job to work with those who have gone through it through the process of healing, and we will do that with you. Um, if you can't tell me, tell Tom. If you can't tell Tom, tell Amy. If you can't tell Amy, tell Etta. If you can't tell Etta, tell Carrie. If you can't tell one of them, one of us, tell somebody, and if they don't believe you, tell somebody else. If they don't believe you, tell somebody else. Come to us and let us walk you through that don't hide in shame or fear. And I know if there's somebody here that has either been through it or is going through it, through it right now, you're thinking, you don't understand the shame and the fear I feel. And you are right. I do not. I don't understand it. 
but I want to help you if I can. I want us to be a place, a church, that people who have been hurt and wounded, especially by the church, can find healing and find hope. So, the statistics are right, and they usually are, and the, the numbers of unreported, and uh, I think that was somewhere around 75%, is that what they said, 75-80% go unreported? Then chances are very good there's some people in this room right now who have been abused and have never told anybody. This is your invitation. Not a great word. This is your encouragement to get help. If it's not us, go to somebody so we can do whatever we can to help you through this. And before I get to my message this morning, I want to pray for you. Uh, if you have been abused, you know who you are, I don't. I want to pray for us as a church that we would be a welcoming helping, loving, caring, concerned community that doesn't shun, that doesn't blame, that doesn't sweep under the rug, that doesn't say, well, it's more important that the name First Baptist Church not be hurt than the name of someone who's accused be hurt. That's not what we're going to be about. So let me pray for you and for us as we continue to process all this. Lord, Lord, I, I can't understand. I, I don't. There's no way, and to be completely honest, I don't want to ever fully understand it. From a, a, a victim's point of view or from a family member's point of view, I, I, I don't, none of us want to go through that. The truth and the fact is that many of us in this room probably have. And Lord, there are a lot of us here that are scared to share their pain, to share their hurt. They, they feel like it's their fault. They are ashamed. They've been threatened. They've been coerced. They've been groomed. They've been brainwashed. And Lord, it, it will take a miracle from you to even get them to that first step and we, I, we know that but Lord I pray that they will take that first step that we will be a church that helps that loves that encourages that supports that stands beside but also a church that admits if we've had any part in harboring this sort of thing, if it's been poor policy, whether in the past or currently, if, if there has been knowledge of abuse that has been uh, ignored or pushed on to another church or something in, in that realm, we would, we would confess that and repent of that as a church. And Lord, that you would help us be the hands and feet of Jesus those who have experienced this. Lord, give us grace and wisdom to handle the situations, to know what authorities 
like services to involve, know who to talk to, know how to talk, the words to say, God, this, this, I don't stand here and look forward in anticipation of any of these situations occurring other than the honor that it will be to stand in your son's place and be his hands and feet to someone who's hurting. God, we know that this is this is a mess. And it is a mess that is caused by sin. Not the sin of the abused, the sin of the abuser. And Lord, we pray that we would be willing to get down into the mess of real life as a church and to help people where they are take the punches and the bruises that come handle the hurt and the questions, the rage at us, at you. And just love people that have been hurt. God, I pray for the, the fear and the, the, the extreme trepidation of those who know they need to talk to somebody and they just can't. Lord, give them the strength. Give them the courage. Help them to find a way out of the hell that their life is right now because of the abuse that they have received or are currently receiving. God be with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're thinking that was a heavy way to start a sermon, you got a glimpse of what we've been feeling for the last three days. But it's where we are, so it's something that needs to be covered and discussed, and I've got a sermon now to work through very quickly, I promise. Take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and go to chapter 19 of, verse, uh, of, of Acts verses 23 through 41, we, we, we have talked about Paul, and as this passage relates, and, 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 or as it rather relates to God's will, at this point in time, Paul is wandering. This is how we are going to move forward. Uh, if, uh, Paul is wandering from God's will, and he's not going to turn it around until Acts 27, and he's only going to turn it around then because he's in chains and being forced to go to Rome. You're not sure what I'm talking about, Michael? What are you talking about? God's not, he, Paul's not in God's will. Go back and listen to the sermon from August 18th called Our Extraordinary Disobedience, and that will kind of catch you up to where we are. But that's the premise we're going to work under all the way through chapter 26, beginning now through chapter 26. Paul is wandering. But this does not mean that ministry doesn't get done in this time. This certainly doesn't mean there aren't uh, opportunities for us to glean from First Church those uh, parts of, of the story that we need to enact. We need to 
put into motion, we need to understand. I mean, God taught his people in the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. He taught them constantly about himself and them. And a church can see successes even in a time of ministry, wandering, and disobedience. That doesn't mean that nothing good ever happens. It just means that right now, Paul, in this situation, is not where he was supposed to be. Because great in this circumstance was sacrificed for what was at best just okay. Paul made a decision to do something that he thought was good, but it wasn't the great. It wasn't what God wanted. Churches do this all the time. I mean, while God can use our times of disobedience, it's in our obedience where God really flexes, where we see what God can do. He works in our disobedience, but we don't be disobedient so that we can see God work despite us. That's not our goal or our purpose. And then we get to verse 23 of chapter 19, and we see the riot of the silversmiths uh, led by, uh, by Demetrius, and this riot is the first evidence of a bad turn in Paul's ministry. Now, I've said it before, over and over and over, and I'll say it again, over and over and over, roadblocks and failures aren't necessarily evidence of disobedience. This riot was not necessarily evidence of Paul's disobedience. However, the Ephesian ministry had been perfect up to this point, up to the point where Paul, as Luke says in Acts, set his face toward Jerusalem. When he did that, Everything in the Ephesian mission went, that's in the Greek. You pronounce it in Greek. It was going well, and then it wasn't. It seems clear that God removed his hand. The riot may have happened anyway. This is, and this is kind of the, the theme of the message. It's when culture reacts. The, the riot could have been something that would have occurred had God not removed his hand, apparently, but it might not have ended the Ephesian mission, and it did in this case. At the end of this riot, when this is over, Paul leaves, and the Ephesian mission is done. Read with me verses 21, uh, 23 through 41 of Acts chapter 19. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. Remember, that's what they called Christianity, the way. It was a title at the time. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they'd heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. 
Some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front. Motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. When they recognized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of, of, of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are, deni are, are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you've brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run the risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, it's, it's pretty obvious as we read this that, that an abrupt change from the previous two-plus years of Paul's mission in Ephesus uh, has occurred. And, and while we can see the reason that the outbreak occurs is because of God's removed hand, we want to ask the question, why does the culture react that way? Why, why do we hear these particular reactions, and then what can we learn ultimately from Demetrius's reaction? That's what we're going to look at this morning. That's our focus. Uh, briefly, though, very briefly, I want to just point out some things through the passage. We're not going to work through the whole passage. We're going to spend this, our time on Demetrius's statement to the other workers. But, but notice some things that occurred. They went, after he makes this statement and he starts this riot, they go into the amphitheater, they drag along, they can't find Paul, so they find the closest Christians they can to gra drag in there and blame. They get in the amphitheater, it, a lot of the folks don't even know why they're there. They just riot party, I'm there, and they showed up. I'm always up for a riot, and they're in there, and they're, they're uh, rioting, and a Jew gets up, well, well first actually Paul wants to speak to him. let me go in there. Paul is told no. Disciples say, no, you are not the one to address this crowd. Even some of his friends who are in authority in the city say, no, you are not going in there. That would not help a thing. Keep that in mind because later on, Paul's not going to have friends with him, not have disciples with him, not have friends in the city, and he's going to address, ask to address a Jewish riot, and we're going to see why it was a good idea that they told him not to here, and he kind of wish he had had somebody tell him not to there. It's a foreshadowing here that we see. So uh, he says they, they, he got, tries to get up there. They say no. Uh, another Jew gets up there, uh, Alexander, and uh, he starts to talk because he wants to explain. What they see is, wait a minute, you're Jewish. You only believe in one God too. You don't believe in, our, in Artemis either. You shut up and get down. And they start yelling, and they yell for a couple more hours, and then wisdom prevails when the city clerk gets up there and says, as a matter of fact, we could get in trouble for rioting. He, he makes some points here that, that uh, I had more time this morning, uh, I, I we would go into, but he says, they are not a threat. Their message is not a threat. We are going to look at that a little bit toward the end. But we are considered a threat by Rome, by, by rioting like this. Okay, so there's your background. So why does the culture react this way? 
There are three reasons we see Demetrius in particular and the culture in general react. The first one is profit or for an economic reason. Verse 25, Demetrius gives that, uh, that reason. Men, you know that our prosperity, our profit, our business, our way of life is derived from this business. He is making clear to the people, telling them what they already know, that this is no minor side hustle. This isn't something they do on the side to make a little extra cash while they're doing their big job. This is, a, this is it. This is their living, and living is good. We make idols for Artemis. And you know what? Artemis' temple is here. Makes perfect sense. We, it is a, a market for uh, excellence and for excelling. This is where they wanted to be. It uh, affects robocall. It affects uh, everything in their life. This idea or this uh, new religion that is coming in to Ephesus. It, it affects those first. The prophet affects those that consume products related to sin. That's the first thing we see about the prophet. When people come to Christ, think of the effects on those who peddle in sin. The effects on pimps and pornographers and drug dealers and distillers and brewers and writers and directors and politicians and others that gain their living from wanton sinfulness of unbelievers. And if you're listening closely, you heard me say distillers and brewers, calm down. I'm not talking about you sipping saints. I'm talking about abuse and alcoholism and drunkenness, those things the Bible is clear on that are sinful, those things that tear apart a family. Those incidences uh, go down when people come to Christ. It, is a, it has a profit effect on those that, uh, it has an effect rather on those that consume products related to sin. So if it affects the ones who consume the products, who else does it affect? The ones that sell them, the, the, the makers. It affects those who provide those goods and services related to sin. They don't like that. Demetrius didn't like that his business was messed up by these people coming to Christ. Not only does it change the habits of consumers, it will change the habits of the producers. If a producer comes to Christ, they're not going to produce it anymore. Or, or actually, in this case that we're talking about, there will no longer be a market for those products and services that bind people in sin. So the pimps and the pornographers and the writers and the directors, the distillers, the brewers, and all these other people get uh, mad because their business is going away. So it affects uh, the people who use it. It affects the people who produce it. But I think sometimes maybe we miss this aspect, this niche it affects, affects those who work in industries that provide goods and services related to sin. Pornographers don't like it when the actors and actresses come to Christ and don't want to act, act, act anymore. Pimps don't like it when prostitutes come to Christ and don't want to be prostitutes anymore. It, it changes the economy of a family when someone comes to Christ. It can because that person works in an industry and can no longer support the family because they no longer do those things 
or will participate in those things that are sinful that make them money. Etta and I knew a gentleman at one time who uh, got saved. And when he got saved, he was the manager of a restaurant at a strip club. And he was dealing, I mean, he, it was, for some of us, probably all of us, you know, well, you quit. It's not that easy. He had two or three kids. He had a wife to support. He knew where he was was wrong, and he shouldn't be there, and yet, I've got a family. And this is what I know to do, and this is I have a job that I have, and this is something I'm good at. It, the, the, it is the, that profit aspect of a cultural change when Christ moves in affects everybody. The people who sell, the people who buy, the people who work. Now you've shrunk the workforce. So the people who produce don't have the people to work. See, now, tell me, or you don't have to tell me, think about, why does the sun keep rising up here? Uh, Tell me, or think about, if, if your entire economy in one market is affected by one thing and and Christ defeats that one thing what happens to that market what happens to that economy well you have a riot you have Demetrius show up why does the culture react number two first profit second perspective and this is a cultural reference verse 26 Demetrius says you see and hear that not only in Ephesus But in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. This has a religious aspect to it, but this this particular sentence is much more about the culture that had grown up in this religion. Idolatry is a way of life deeper than mere religion, at least for these Ephesians and probably for others as well. The, 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 the culture was steeped in this belief. So much so that you had people that probably didn't really believe it, but that's kind of who they were. We're Ephesians. So we worship Artemis. When was the last time you went to temple? Oh, I've never been to temple. When was the last time you bought one of those little idols? I don't have any of those idols. But you worship, you worship Artemis? Oh, yeah. yeah I'm an Ephesian. It's very similar, we might compare it anyway, to our American civil religion. And I'm not talking about true believers, I'm talking about the, the idea that we are a Christian nation. And while percentage-wise, through the history, we have been a vast majority Christian, though that is shrinking, in 1972, 88% of the people of Americans said they were Christians, Uh, In 2018, 70% said, we've talked about before, the rise of the nuns, the no religion, and that's what's happening. We know that in America, really only about 23% of the population claims to be a born-again believer, what we would say is a true Christian. And yet, 70% of the people in America say they are Christian. The fact is, the truth is, many that would claim as a motto, in God we trust, are no more Christian than a ping pong ball. There's no real faith there. It's just who they are as Americans. Maybe it's who they are as Southerners. We are highly cultural Christian in the South. Uh, Much greater percentage cultural Christian in the South than the other parts 
of the country. Think of, uh, got to go back a ways now, okay? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. There's a movie in the 80s, I think, maybe late 80s. Kevin Costner played Robin Hood, which is an odd choice anyway, but I think he directed the movie, so he gets to pick who he wants to, and he picked himself. Uh, Morgan Freeman played Azim, uh, uh, a, a, a black African Muslim uh, part of the story. Throughout the movie, Robin Hood, Kevin Costner, is referred to Christian by Azim as a title, as a, as a name. Why? Now, Robin Hood in the movie, in my memory, shows no evidence of being a born-again believer. Uh, certainly, I'm, he had Friar Tuck, who was a drunk in the movie. You, you've got all these trappings of Christianity, but he called him a Christian because he was a white European, a European and Azim is a black African, so to Azim, all whites are Christians. So that's what he called him. It was cultural. It, it wasn't based on anything he had said. It was just who he was by his culture. That's what we have here partially going on with Demetrius. That is certainly what we will have if we infiltrate a culture that is unchristian with Christ. If you don't believe me, read some testimonies about uh, our North American Mission Board church planters that are going into places where cultural Christianity isn't a thing, where they go to the Northwest and they go to uh, Portland, Oregon to plant a church, or they go to New York City to plant a church. And here, the struggles that they have getting into the culture and the responses from those cultures, because they're not even cultural Christians anymore. In the South, we'll not wink and nod, all right, good, there's a church on the corner. You going? Oh, heck no. I'm glad there's one there. You know, they'll do that. Not in some places, certainly not in some places the world. Now, this does not mean that there weren't true believers in Ephesus. Just as there was, a, it just means that there was a surface devotion that, they, that shaped who they were as Ephesians, not just adherents, or not as adherents. There was more here than a true faith. It was a culture. Folks, when we take the gospel to a culture that rejects Christianity uh, as a whole, there will be backlash. There will be a huge negative response. See, for these folks, the identification with the faith was as important as the faith itself, maybe more so. Like I said, are you a worshiper of Artemis? Yep. You ever go to temple? No. Why do you consider yourself a worshiper of Artemis? I'm an Ephesian. And that's what we do here. It was a culture. And that identity, that identification with the faith, rather than having the faith itself, is not easily or welcomingly violated. When we go to a culture and say, not only is your identification, is your religion wrong, but your identification with it is wrong, I can give you a personal example. We went to Spain a couple of times on mission trips. And what we learned from the missionaries there is that if you went to, if you discussed religion with a Spaniard, they would tell you they hated the Catholic Church. It had been uh, in bed with Franco from World War II up until the 70s or 80s, and, and, and there was no trust for the Catholic Church. 
And, and, and a missionary-minded person thinks, ooh, an opening. Well, I could see why you wouldn't understand. I mean, you wouldn't, uh, you would have that opinion of the Catholic Church. Can I share with you what, what, what a real faith looks like, though? Someone you can put your trust in. Can, can I tell you about Jesus? Oh, no, I'm Catholic. You just said you hated the Catholic. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you about Jesus. No, I'm Catholic. They were culturally. That was their culture. They were not going to turn their back on their culture. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians because that's who we are. Uncomfortable adjustments to the culture lead to uncomfortable reactions from the culture. Number three, why culture, why the culture reacts. The third reason, culture reacts, pride. This is the religious reason. And we see it in verse 27. Not only do we run the risk that our business may do you discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia and the world worship. Really? Everybody? Well, see, Demetrius is a true believer here. He's not a cultural Artemisian. Sure. It's not cultural worship for him of Artemis. He is a true to believer, a true believer. I mean, listen to his concerns here. First, that his business will be discredited. Now, of course, we're going back to profit here, too. It's the business will be discredited. But that word discredited actually means more about, like falls into disrepute as a result of lowered respect for the goddess herself. We will be affected because people won't think of Artemis the same way. Now, it's not uncommon for people to use religion as a mask for their desires for profit. But, uh, so there's a little of that going on, too. But he, but he keeps on going. Not only will our business fall into disrepute because people don't uh, respect the goddess like they did, the, the temple will be despised. But remember, he makes idols which were probably actually uh, uh, small temples carved the temple into little pieces of silver, and that's what you took home. So there's still some profit here. And then he says, her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. And then they see the pride. All of Asia and the world worship her. Do you see what this faith is doing to our goddess? It's a powerful threat, Christianity is, that can overturn a religion, and Demetrius saw the threat. Demetrius knew the power. He took pride in his faith. He was a devoted worshiper of Artemis. He was jealous for the object of his faith, the goddess. And he reacted as anyone whose treasured beliefs had been overturned would react. I dare say we would have the same response if someone came in and attempted to convert the entire church to a new faith. How dare you speak ill of Jesus? I mean, we do that all the time. We, they use the Lord's name in vain on TV. We do stuff like that. So we, we, we can understand Demetrius's point here, right? Demetrius just represents the culture, the very culture we are trying to take the gospel to. The, the challenge to a person's religion is an attack on their core and their community, and in his case, their business. But this was everything. 
Paul and his mission to Ephesus had disrupted everything in their lives. We're going to look at how Paul did it. See, the responses of chapter 19, we remember back a number of weeks, they burned their magic books. That's what really started all this. Paul had this great mission for two years. Magicians burned the magic books, and, and people are coming to Christ. And all these responses are merely the result of Jesus in their midst. It's just happening. It's another overused word in our society today. It's organic. It's just growing from the, the message that's there. Paul never had a, a program to stamp out magic. There was no, well, we're going to take all the magicians. We're tired of these magicians in our community. We're tired of these pornographers in our t- community. We're tired of these uh, liquor stores in our community. We're tired. He, he wasn't doing those sorts of things. He wasn't taking on a project. He wasn't, there was no campaign against individuals or lifestyles, which we do as a church today. What we see Paul doing is engaging the community in persuasive discussion, not in position. So we look at three things that we don't see in Paul's evangelism in Ephesus. Culture will react. But why will they react? Do we want them to react to our determination to shut the doors of this or that business or to eradicate this lifestyle? Rosaria Butterfield, who is uh, a believer now, uh, she's a professor at one of the Ivy League schools. She's a former lesbian who has written a number of books and uh, spoken at a number of different conferences. And she said, my problem was not my homosexuality. It was my lack of Jesus. If we attack the lifestyle, if we attack the, the, uh, the magician and we don't take on the lostness, we won't win anybody. Paul saw this. Three things quickly, I promise, promise, promise. We don't see isolationist evangelism with Paul. We don't see choosing to bring people to church rather than engaging them in their context. We don't see that. We, we see him going to them and saying and sitting down and talking and, and spending time with them where they are. There's a next si- slide, Judy, that has that, uh, that, that point on it. What we don't see is uh, isolationist evangelism. Bring them to church, absolutely. One more. Bring them to church, absolutely. But don't rely on that. Engage them where they are. Let the invitation to church, as much as possible, follow the engagement that you've already had with them. We talked about on the way home yesterday, we want to scatter as much seed as possible. Invite as many people to church as you can. But don't let that be your evangelism. Not this isolationist evangelism. We find one, we bring them to church, and then we isolate them. We back off and say, okay, they're at church, we're done. Number two, what we don't see from Paul is an emotional appeal. Paul and we need to pursue an understanding and appreciation of the gospel that leads to a response. We're not trying to scare people out of, hair, uh, out of hell. We're not trying to cry them out of hell. We don't want to see an emotion of fear or sadness that results in, uh, or that only uh, those two things result in some response. Yes, emotions are a part of coming to Christ. 
absolutely. But emotions ebb and flow. Today, I might not, or tomorrow, I might not feel as sad about my sin as I do today. Tomorrow, I won't hear your scary message on hell, so it won't res- I won't respond to it the same way. But truth is the same today and tomorrow. So if we engage them with the gospel, we engage their heart and their mind and their emotions. Three, what we don't see is a pursuit of quick results. We need to take the time to relate to someone as they are convicted by the Holy Spirit to give us opportunity for follow-up. Again, take every opportunity to share the gospel. Take the opportunities of those momentary encounters, but don't depend on them. Don't say, oh, I'm just a, I'm just a you know, machine gun evangelist. Gospel, 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 gospel. See, I shared the gospel with 100 people. How many heard it? How many opportunities did you have to follow up? See, our purpose... is not to just see things happen, not to get people in, not to uh, appeal to emotions. We want to disciple. We want to change people. Nor is our purpose to take on systems and structures. And after I've said all that, yes, let's shut, shut down the smut peddlers and the, the whorehouses and all these other things, absolutely. That, that, that's not something we don't want to do, but don't think that that fixes the problem. That just puts a little Band-Aid on some symptoms when the lostness is the problem. So our purpose is not to take on these systems and structures. We need to witness to people. But guarantee that when we do, the systems and the structures and the people will always be against us. Most effective evangelism is a sustained effort over time. And it results in slow growth. It results in a community, a culture that reacts negatively. And we just have to understand that as we move forward and see that Paul experienced the same things. The culture will react. Our gospel never changes. This slow, effective evangelism, sustained effort over time, is why I present the gospel every Sunday. There's some of you been saved for however many years. If you come to church most Sundays, hear most Sunday sermons, you've heard the gospel presented hundreds of times. Some of you may be getting into thousands. You know it, right? we got to keep sharing it. There might be somebody here this morning that's heard it 101. There'll be 102 before they get saved. So our gospel is that God's design was broken by sin. And we experience that brokenness. And we experience that brokenness in ways that we learned about this past weekend at the Caring Well Conference. That brokenness, though, can only be healed by the gospel. The gospel is the only answer, the only response... And we need to repent and believe that gospel, that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and his death and burial and, resu- death, burial and resurrection are enough to save us from our sins. And then we recover and pursue his design. That's our purpose. That's, that's our message. Do we want lives and cultures to be changed? Yes. Do we want sin out of the world? Yes. Let's do that by plucking it out, killing it at its root. I 
the heart of individuals as we share the gospel with those who need to hear it. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that we that we're equipped, we're prepared, and we are warned to take on a culture that is hostile against us. Take on a culture that will not be happy about the message that we bring to them. But Lord, we don't take the message of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ because we are trying to make people happy, but because you want to make people holy. And Lord, I pray that we would be bold and courageous and we would understand the repercussions, what will happen, and yet we will still share that gospel. Lord, I again pray this morning for those who are experiencing hurt. Some of them may have never come to Christ, may have never have experienced salvation, and it might be the abuse that has kept them from coming. Lord, I pray this morning that they would see through the pain, the fog of abuse, and see a Savior reaching out. Maybe that'll be their first step toward healing. Others that they've been believers for a while, but The very idea of calling you Father makes them sick to their stomachs because of what their fathers did to them. And Lord, there's a deeper hurt, a, a, a longer process. There's a, a pain there that we want to come alongside and help, help with. Lord, this morning you know the hearts of every individual here. You know what decision has to be made. And we pray that they, that each of us would make that decision based on your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing, and you'll have an opportunity to pray, to respond to God, to do whatever it is you need to do this morning. Prayer rails are open. Tom will be over here if you'd like him to pray. I'll be over here to, to your right. Come to us if you need prayer. Let us minister. Let this church come alongside you. If you need Christ and you want more information, talk to us about that. Do business with God as we sing this morning.